0: And there's a lot of interest, um, of guys coming, guys and girls coming out of the military of, Hey, I want to grow my own food. Um, you know, I'm tired of eating MREs and, um, you know, the chow hall. So I would like some quality food in my life. And, uh, you yeah, know, you've seen the world, you, you see what, um, you see what life outside of the American bubble is. And you know, that, um, You know, starvation and death are closer than a lot of us tend to think. And so it's, you know, kind of a good idea to kind of have your own thing going because uh, I don't want to starve to death.
1: (laughs) This is the Farm Hop Life podcast, a traveling homestead family. I'm Matt Derosier. Today, my guest is G- Jordan Green of JNL Green Farm in Edinburgh, Virginia. He and his wife Laura, along with their three kids, raise pasture pork, beef, chicken, turkey, and eggs. That is quite a lot. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. You are quite generous with your time with to others. Uh, I I noticed that about your videos. You're always um, you know, giving farm advice, business advice, or even ripping on Dave Ramsey. That's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> Thanks for having me, Matt.
1: Yeah. Thank you for being here. Um, so in, in your first, in your first Q and a that you did, um, you did kind of sit, kind of give up, like give your background, uh, but I'd like to hear it again, if you don't mind. So how did you like get started farming?
0: Well, I mean, well, like most things, um, they they come about as an accumulation of experiences and uh, trial and error over the years. So I couldn't tell you the first day that I did something farm related. It was, you know, probably helping uh, you know my grandfather in a garden as a kid or something like that. Uh, but you know, things that become a uh, a lifetime passion kind of grow over the years, and I think that's how it worked out for me. That um you know as a teenager when we moved here to Virginia I got a job working on a local farm um which led into having a little bit more of a business approach to some of the farm stuff that was going on at my parents place to um, you know getting the opportunity to go to Polyface and do an apprenticeship there in 2001 That's um, awesome. which then led into uh, you know kind of a small consulting business for a few years helping other people start farms around the east coast um, yeah, and then I took a break for five years to go to the Marine Corps to you know, do something else I wanted to do with my life, and um, you know then got married while I was uh, you know in the military. And my wife and I came back to Virginia in 2009 and started J&L Green Farm. So it's um, kind of been a, a lifelong endeavor, I, I suppose you could say.
1: That's, I mean, yeah, it's it's not just like one thing; it's like a whole like. Accumulation of lots of little events that led to where you are today. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, when did uh, JNL start? Then what? What year was that? How long have you been operating?
0: So that was two thousand nine. Um, <clears throat> you know, right in the middle of the the financial crisis, basically. Um, you know, about a year prior, we had started planning to come back and start the farm. And I remember talking to uh, you know one of my uh, superior uh, NCOs in the unit, and he was like, "You know, what are you doing?" And I was like, "I'm going to get out and start a farm." And he's like, "That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard." (laughs) Like, well, thank you for your opinion, but uh, I'm still leaving. Um, So yeah, we came back in uh, June or July of 2009, and you know, it wasn't we we had already had the wheels in motion for. Uh, at least a year before that. So it it wasn't like we didn't know what we were going to do and came back and then decided to farm. It was a very deliberate move to come back to this area. We had an opportunity on a piece of property to start farming there. Um, We had a family member that was going to front us some of the capital to get started. And we already had somewhat of a market ready to go. So we were able to hit the ground day one and already have a lot of things to do and uh, you'll probably most importantly have cash flow for the business coming, you know, sooner rather than uh, rather than later. Right.
1: Yeah your your video of like what was it like uh, eighty thousand dollars worth of pigs looks like out on your pasture and whatnot like uh, that's that's one hundred thirty thousand. So
0: we we are in inflationary times, Matt. So it's one hundred. That's
1: true. <laughs> it's only one hundred and thirty now, man. That's right. What a bargain. <laughs> Man, Man, I liked, I liked your, um, I can't remember when it was posted, but like, there was just like a big pile. There must've been like 50 little piglets, like all in one pile in the woods, like that you got, like, that was kind of, that was kind of funny. I've never seen so many piglets just piled up there. Yeah. Um, so then what would you say motivates you to grow your own food? Not just, not just for others, but like for you and like your family.
0: Sure. Well, I, I mean, you can look around right now and see that it's probably a good idea to grow your own food, <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously we're in a kind of very interesting situation right now as a country, and hopefully there'll be stability in the the near future. Um, you know, for me growing our own food, you know, it's always, I'm always appreciative of being prepared and I would not say I'm a prepper per se, but, um, you do sleep better at night knowing you've got twenty thousand pounds of meat in the walk-in freezer <laughs> out behind the house, yeah, um, and animals out in the field. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate those elements of realizing that for all of the technology that we have and the progress that's made been made with humanity, you know, over the last say thousand years, we still are very connected to the earth being you know, uh, a pretty vital part of our existence, let's just say, um, you know, in that food still has to be grown, uh, you know, animals have to be butchered, meat has to be cut up, and farmers have to do a lot of this work. Um, and that's a, a very important part of human civilization. And it, we, we can become so detached from that, in today's world, especially, where most people have never seen an animal, you know, be, be harvested and, and cut up they don't know what to do if you were to toss you know a carcass of some animal on the table they wouldn't know what to do with it right. um, I like just having a little bit more security in my well-being let's say and um, you know fortunately for me farming is something that I'm passionate about and I enjoy doing and it's also something that um, is a very beneficial uh, element for a thriving society to have, uh, you know, a good agricultural base. So, you know, for me, I also enjoy the elements of eating food that you, that you've grown. Um, uh, you know, it's very, once you have grown say strawberries for yourself, it's very hard to go back and eat some strawberries from the store and, uh, <laughs> yeah, taste that absolutely. kind of, Kind of watery cardboard texture, and and the same is with meats. That um, there's a, a huge difference between <clears throat> animals that are raised in a you know nature mimicking production model where they are allowed to express their innate uh, animalness. The, the the quality of the meat that's coming from those carcasses is far and away vastly superior to what you will find in the store and what's been raised in a commodified commercialized um, production model. So the, you know, the joke my wife and I have is that we can't really go uh, out to barbecue places because we're spoiled by our own meat. So whenever we go someplace, we start commenting on the quality of their meat and uh, how they need to step up their game a little bit.
1: Is that a sale then? Do you try to sell them like, Hey, by the way, I raise pigs
0: um not really because we we decided many years ago to not really pursue restaurants from a marketing standpoint it's um uh, just a game that we didn't want to play that the a restaurant typically wants the uh, a very select range of cuts usually the more higher quality one uh and they want the rock bottom price possible there there's very few restaurants engaged in this nose to tail mentality where they're going to use every sure. Piece of meat off of the carcass, and so sounds like they need better chefs to figure it out. Then, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's all the above that uh, you know, it's it's easy to compartmentalize the problems that we have in the food system and say, oh, it's the chefs that are problem. Oh, it's the USDA that's the problem. And, you know, oh, the I government. meant just like be creative with yeah, the cuts yeah. Of well, meat that you have. yeah, I, I think solutions though have to be very holistic in nature that. um, it, it needs better eaters. And, you know, it's it, true. You can have an amazing nose to tail restaurant and, you know, the, the most artistic um, and creative chef imaginable, but if no one comes to the restaurant to eat, well, then it's not going to go anywhere. So, you know, I, I'm a big advocate of personal responsibility and the reason that 30, 40% of all meals are, are fast food, that's eaten in a car. Um, Yes, there, there can be elements of that that are societal and marketing, sure. But um, let's not neglect the personal choice that everybody makes that the market has chosen to embrace that. And if the market would choose to embrace something better, then you would see those restaurants and chefs come along. Um, Start it starts with with both you and me making a change and then trying to influence our friends to make a change as well.
1: Trying, trying to make an influence and that's all you can really do. Like, uh, I don't know if you've, um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but that's okay. I don't know if you've ever heard like the, the, your circle or sphere of control and influence and um, whatnot. So like, yeah, So, so you get it. Like you can only like have an influence on other people. The only thing you can really control is yourself and whatnot. And so it really, I mean, even your dog, your dog, you don't have control over your dog, right? I mean, you can only influence your dog to make, make right decisions. You can't like specifically control your dog, but. um, Yeah.
0: And how much, how much emotional and mental energy is wasted on uh, stressing and venting about that outermost circle, which is the thing we cannot control at all exactly but, you know it's it's easy to rage against the other people
1: <laughs> oh yes yes the other side yes it's always the other side it's their fault yes um so then working at i'm, I'm trying to put the timeline together in my head so it was 2001 when you worked at polyface before would you was that really before polyface was even really well known
0: um I mean certainly west less well known than now, I mean that was before Michael Pollan and the omnivores dilemma before um a lot of other things that came along, but uh, you know they were pretty well known then I would say more inside okay. of the farming community um there was a you know steady stream of visitors when I was there. they had some on farm events that were that were well attended, but it it was a smaller um organization that there there were no okay. full-time employees at that point outside of the family um, they only had two apprentices per year and they had uh one rental farm in addition to their their home base so you know certainly it's grown a lot since then to where they have you know dozens of full-time employees they manage thousands of acres of farmland and um you know joel's a lot more well known and written a lot more books since then
1: <laughs> definitely uh so how old were you then when you when you um worked at polyface uh, i was 19 when i went there 19 that's right okay um, um so having been there and like working were you working side by side with joel then
0: um there was a decent amount of working alongside with him um yeah i'd say maybe half the days Oh, that he was out. But he was doing a fair amount of speaking then as well. Sure. Um, and, you know, doing some some media stuff. But, yeah, more days than not, he was out there doing different things on the farm. But the 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 approach they had was not necessarily you tagging along with him or Daniel all the time. It was them getting you trained to do a specific aspect of the farm and then right. you were taking care of that aspect. Um, and, you know, and actually being an asset to the team and not just a, a liability that has to get towed around. Everywhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We might come back to that later. It's not on my questions, but we might get to that might get to that later. Um, so then working at Polyface, you must have picked up quite a lot of like practices or like techniques um, or like methods that you're now currently implementing on your own farm.
0: It was a good exposure to see pasture-based production models at scale. Um, you know, we had had some of that on our uh, my parents' kind of uh, homestead, farmstead type of thing. Um, you know, I had been around scaled agriculture working on a previous farm job, but it was commodity agriculture, and um, you know, it was not a pasture-based type production model. So, um, yeah, certainly going there it was good to have that exposure of a. Um, you know, what they look like, be uh, you know, helping them build out a rental farm was a very valuable experience of getting an eye for looking at a piece of ground, seeing what the potential there is, um, you know, understanding that you can get started with a, a pretty low level of infrastructure. You don't have to have a completely built out farm with everything there in order to start operating. Uh, and those were certainly you know, very valuable foundational experiences to you know, what we took and, and did later on.
1: Um, so with you having been at polyface and now doing your own thing and you're kind of doing a lot more like, um, like you're helping other farmers, are you going to be the new Joel Salatin? Are you going to be on Joe Rogan and, uh, just (laughs) like attempted to be
0: destroyed in the media? (laughs) I mean, do you have Joe Rogan's number? Can you, uh, can you hook me up? Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all I mean, podcasters I don't know. Yeah. we have our phone book. That's right. I mean, for me, um, sharing what we do is um, you know something that I'm passionate about because I I don't like seeing people fail at things, um, and startup farms have one of the highest failure rates of yeah. I, of any startups um, out there. And it's in the ninety percentile range of farms that start are going to fail within five to seven years. And, uh, you know, there, there's really no reason everyone needs to reinvent the wheel entirely on their own. And it started off with, um, you know, five, six years ago with starting a YouTube channel to address what I saw as a, uh, a missing element in social media. Um, and, and, um, YouTube for showing how these applications were done at some level of scale. That there's you know, ten thousand, hundred thousand YouTube channels for homestead stuff. Yeah. Um, but there, at the time, there was really nothing for. Here's how to do a group of a hundred pigs instead of just one pig, and sure. here's how to look at your farm not only through the lens of what is rewarding for you personally, or what is good for the community, but also understanding that the financial health of the business is one of the first um, elements for a true sustainable model that if any particular model is not financially healthy and sustainable, then you've got no business calling yourself a sustainable farm. And yeah, just kind of kind of grew from there to Um, You know, people wanting to come out and see the farm and us doing some classes and, you know, getting invited to speak at different places. And so I'm, you know, for me, the the whole public side is a small piece of what I do on a day to day basis. I still have a large operation to run here and, and a team of people to work with. But it's been, you know, it's been a fun thing to do as a kind of secondary element.
1: Did you have something like a warrior day or um what was it called it was uh yeah it's a warrior field
0: day that one yeah there there's a there's a big draw for the veteran community to agriculture that uh, there, there's a lot of similarities between military service and operating a farm um you know the the joke is that we have learned how to suffer well while we were in the military <laughs> and so you're very suited for the farm life. If you know how to suffer and you know, the rain and the snow and the mud. Sure. Um, you know, at least the pigs haven't invented AK 47s yet. So they're not (laughs) shooting back at you. So it's all good. Um, but you know, there's people who go into the military by and large are very purpose driven, um, very mission oriented, getting things done. Um, relatively low BS types. And when you leave that military service, you, you have left a community and a family that, you know, maybe you appreciated or didn't appreciate, but you do miss that element when you, when you have departed of having people of similar mindset around you of having a team that's going to, um, you know, keep you on the straight and narrow, maybe, (laughs) <laughs> and you know kick your butt when necessary um and that that is missing for a lot of veterans when they leave and they find um i think a lot of reward and a lot of healing in some type of farming and there's a lot of interest um of guys coming guys and girls coming out of the military of hey i want to grow my own food Um, you know, I'm tired of eating MREs and, um, you know, the chow hall. So I would like some quality food in my life. And, uh, you know, you've seen the world, you, you see what, um, you see what life outside of the American bubble is. And you know, that, um, you know, starvation and death are closer than a lot of us tend to think. And so it's, you know, kind of a good idea to kind of have your own thing going because, uh. I don't want to starve to death.
1: (laughs) Yep, definitely. Travel will absolutely open your eyes to um, stuff that you just, unless you're in like, even like the worst of the worst, the United States, it's, it's not like it is in other countries. Um, When my wife and I took our, took our honeymoon, we went to, we went to Asia and was in like in. It was in Cambodia. We were like, we got like a little tour of some temples scheduled. And like, so you get up at like four o'clock, they make you like food and you bring it with you to the temple because you're like, you're there before sunrise. And anyway, so you eat. There's little kids coming around and collecting all this trash. Well, like, what looks like trash. uh, And he like started taking like my styrofoam container and i'm like i'm i'm still eating but i think i was was still like eating when i wasn't really like hungry i was like it's in front of me i'm gonna eat it i saw that and then later i saw that same little kid digging through the trash looking for food scraps like and i was like oh i'm a huge dickhead like i should have just given him like like that half a banana or whatever it was you know what i mean like it would have meant Way, way more to him than like me like eating that banana. So like little little events like that, you should yeah, I don't know. It's it it can change you.
0: You you would never guess sitting here in the United States that 30% of the planet lives on less than a thousand calories a day. That's crazy.
1: I haven't heard that, but I believe most
0: of us probably throw away a thousand calories a day.
1: That is true. That is, that is really true. I'm up to get off on like another little tangent. Uh, it drives me nuts when my wife puts like leftovers in the refrigerator and completely forgets about them. Like, like I am, I will put off making something new for the night and I will raid the refrigerator. Like what's still in here. And like, there'll be like her whatever drawer and I'll like open it. up. like, this is like black. Like this was good. Like what, what is this still doing here? What was your intention on eating this? You know, like now, now we obviously have to throw it away. Like what?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very easy to take things for granted when that's the, um, environment that you grew up in. Um, you know, I got, uh, probably eight, nine years ago, I got to go to a, a very poor country and, um, it was there for a different reason, but I'm looking at the farms. Cause I'm like, uh, you know, I'm passionate about farming. I'm like, Oh, these are you know pretty cool little farms. And um, you know, they had pigs there, which was pretty neat. And they have them on collars and, and leashes tied to trees and the same hmm. with their cows. And then at night they bring them all into their houses so that they're not stolen. And that's just mm. something that you, you would never think about in the united states i mean there's some cattle wrestling here and there but that's you know very very minuscule you would never you know think about as a farmer that if i don't bring my animals in the house somebody's going to steal them tonight right and um ways that we produce food here farmers in other countries could never even dream about because all their stuff would get stolen and that's That's their reality and we're sitting here in our reality like well, why don't you just get your act together? Which yeah. <laughs> they they their their worries is about you know can I keep the animals in the house at night so they're not stolen?
1: Right, like here it'd be like your dog's gonna get stolen before like your cow or your pig or whatever, right?
0: Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think it was uh, you know just a, a couple years ago in uh, China wasn't an order uh, given to uh, basically kill all domesticated dogs because of the amount of food that they were eating and they you know, <laughs> are trying to save off like a, maybe it was, uh, maybe not China, maybe it was North Korea or somewhere, but um, you know, stuff that you know, could, you imagine the outrage in the United States if uh, an order came down from the government that all domesticated pets need to be killed so that we have enough food for the people. I and mean, that, that would just, wow. Be that's below our mind. crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess if you eat the dogs, then it's a win win. I don't know.
0: Well, uh, I'm pretty sure it was in North Korea, uh, that, which is a on the brink, surprise of, me. brink of starvation. Anyway, but that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, pets eat a lot of food, and uh, they do. In a lot of countries, that's real uh, issues that they have to wrestle with that uh, your average person in the West is never even going to think about.
1: Have you seen this latest outcry for like about domestic cats being outside, like um, like outside cats kill billions of birds every year like we need to save the birds like this has been uh-huh. a, a thing
0: lately yeah uh yeah i've seen that that you know it's like three four billion birds a year are killed by cats Um, uh, but you know people will uh tweet about that while they're you know eating uh something that is sprayed with pesticides that also kill billions of birds so that's true. It's kind of a game of choose your hypocrisy that, that you're going to uh, engage in. Um, you know, Nature has a way of balancing predators and prey and you see it in in like say fox populations when they are overpopulated how diseases break out and it sure. reduces their numbers down and then when their prey species rebound then the predator species rebounds as well. Um, so I'm not too worried about, I'm not too worried about the house cats.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Neither. Uh, So what, what have you tried on your farm? That's worked really well for you. Um, It could be like something in business. It could be a farming technique. It could be um, like a single strand of fence to keep your pigs in versus making it out a hog panel. So something like that.
0: Yeah, I guess at a, at a real macro level, what has worked well for us is it's really a, a basic fundamental of being successful in a market driven economy, but it's very often uh, overlooked in the farming sector is we followed the opportunity, you know, where, where the market led. That's where we went. And that's something I tell, you know, young farmers, not young people, but young farmers who are getting in is don't come into the farm saying, I'm going to produce this, that, and the other, when your market might not be looking for that, Mm. see, see what your local market or the regional market is desiring, or what can you create demand for? and see if producing that fits inside the context of, of your farm. Um, like for us, we couldn't, you know, grains are always in demand, but we can't produce grains on our farm because, um, it's very hilly. And so, Mm. you know, very small percentage of our acreage could be devoted to grain production. So we don't do that. Um, the, the huge opportunity that became apparent in our market, once we were on the ground and, and operating was piglets. Um, you know, that we were finishing, we were growing out pigs and finishing them for Polyface to help with a, a supply oh. shortage they had. And, cool. you know, we, we needed piglets. This was back in, you know, 2009, 2010, we needed piglets, but they were already buying up all of the piglets from the local area. And so we had a, pro, a supply issue ourselves and we decided, all right, we will we'll, we'll just start farrowing our own piglets to address our own shortfall and our own shortfall was also a shortfall for a lot of other people because they didn't, you know, they needed piglets too. And so the the opportunity opened to produce a product that we probably never would have considered initially, but because we had that fundamental, um, approach of being very flexible and allowing the market to kind of lead where we went production wise, seeing what the market wanted, seeing that producing that fit in the context of the farms, the, you know, the ground that we had and the local um, kind of conditions, and also that it was in the context of something that we could be happy with producing. All of a sudden, then we're not trying to fight the market to to do our thing. You know, we're not just another guy who's opening, uh, you know, who wants who won- wants to start a dairy, let's say, in an already oversaturated dairy market, and then wondering mm-hmm. why the business is struggling uh, when we're producing a, an overproduced product, and you know market prices are driven down. So if you can stay flexible when you're starting the farm, make adjustments, pivot quickly, try things, fail quickly, move on to something else, um, that's a, a huge piece, I think, to what has Built our success to this point, and you know, kept us from making um, mistakes that I've seen other young farmers make when they jump into a certain production model, invest millions of dollars into infrastructure, and then they're stuck doing that thing for the next twenty years mm. just to pay the mortgage, whether the market is rewarding it or not. Um, banks are banks are always happy to lend you money. <laughs> um, Yeah, actually making money with it is the is the more challenging aspect.
1: Yeah, that's, that's tough. So I'm curious, what, what kind of mistakes would you see young farmers making?
0: Um, I mean, that certainly would be a big one right there that we just talked about is um, making decisions that confine you to rigidity you know, a, a business rigidity where you no longer have flexibility, you can't change, um, you know, the posture of what you're doing inside of an operation, you can't pivot quickly to new market conditions. Hmm. Um, like at the the start of COVID. Um, you know, we went from shipping five or six boxes of product a week to 80 or 90. And because we were flexible in how we market and distribute, we could make the adjustment very quickly, so you know we probably had a you know say a fifty percent shift in how product was being distributed. That and that's something that is difficult for a lot of businesses to change that that fast. Um, there was an industry article that came out to the time talking about I think it was Sanderson Farms how they were shifting um, how they processed chicken basically doing more retail ready chicken instead of institutional chicken, because restaurants were closing down and stuff. And they were shifting their, uh, they, they were shifting the production by 3%. And that was like a big hmm. deal. Because um, you know it, for them, it is it requires reconfiguring equipment and shifting production lines. And you know, it's a, it's a big move. Right. Um, but when you have mm. that more flexible posture, and you're you know, you can be nimble, you can move quickly and that that's also an element from military doctrine that mobility is, is key. And you can look at any conflict in history. You can look at conflicts that are going on right now to Mm -hmm. see that uh, mobility and flexibility on the battlefield and the business field uh, often will defeat a more rigid uh, ideology. So,
1: what on the so that's about you know things that young farmers struggle with or have failed at. What have you tried that failed or didn't work well for you?
0: Um, you know, on an operational level, we tried doing sheep for several years and that uh failed pretty spectacularly for something that's more of an environmental condition, um, hmm. unique to where we are. Um, you know, I'm not a sheep expert. I'm sure someone who's listening who is will correct me on this, but um, you know, we had a very we had a bad parasite problem with this flock mm. of sheep that we had, and we were worming them, and we were doing everything we could, you know, rotating pastures, real extensive ground rest, and we were still losing a lot of lambs. And nice. uh, I talked with a you know retired. New Zealand uh, sheep farmer. And he said, well, the challenge that you're always going to have in Virginia is it gets hot, but it's very high humidity and, you know, sheep can take heat. They can take a dry heat or they can take a cold humidity, but it's real tough when it's a hot. Humidity. Sure. And, you know, maybe it was a breed thing. I don't know. But, um, you know, we did, we got out of sheep after that and just dumped it sure. and, and moved on to, to something else so you know is that a failure you know sure but we learn lessons from it and um you know any any failure that you're that you survive is more like a lesson um and you've learned to do something a little bit uh yeah teachable moment yeah sure
1: yeah. yeah i was gonna say like um on the sheep thing it probably that for that exact reason i've been looking at um hair sheep uh specifically for the they they seem to do better with like parasites and hoof rot things than easy um, easy lambing.
0: Right. These, these these were these were Katahdin Dorpers.
1: Oh, really? Hmm.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um. Hmm. But, okay. Yeah, and then there's that you make a when when you are growing up in business, and again, you know, it's not an age thing. There are infant business people who are 60, because they're they're just getting started. And there are, um, you know, elder businessmen who are in their young 30s, because they've been doing it for 20 years already.
1: Right. Um, They've been hustling since uh, grade school.
0: Right. Um, There's going to always be a process of failing at things. And, uh, you know, the key is always to try to fail quickly at it. So you learn the lesson as quickly as you can, And uh, with the the least expense, hopefully, that you can, so that you go on to something else. Sure. There's certainly no, uh, there there should not be a stigma or a shame at failing at something, because that means um, you have found something else will be the success, um, not that thing that you failed at. And it's it's something that we teach to everyone who comes through our farm to work, because a, a lot of people... Come here with no farming experience and they basically want an internship, but we we do not do internships. Um, you can come work here as part of our, you know, full-time staff, and you know, that's gonna have expectations and and all of that. And most of them, I would say within two to three years, they leave and they never farm again. And we tell we tell them right up front that 80% of people who come through here leave in two or three years. And they never farm again, but we don't consider that a failure. Uh, and neither should you, if you're one of those people, because you have figured that out while you're here, sure. instead of going and, um, vesting yourself heavily into something that you're going to learn down the road, you're not really passionate about, you don't like the hours that's involved, the being out in the rain, you know, it's not an easy career path. Um. Failure to you know to me having a uh, a life grinding away that's something you're not passionate about and always um, you know raging against uh, you know the universe um, <laughs> that that is the failure and it doesn't yeah. matter what the job is or how much money you made at it um, that's more of a failure than doing something for a short period of time and then deciding not to do it and moving on to something else
1: yeah. I suppose if you're going to fail, fail upwards, you know, find that next thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. At least Uh, fail laterally.
1: (laughs) Yeah. At the, (laughs) at the minimum fail laterally. If you're going to fail, do not let it set you back, uh, for a lot of money or a lot of years to recover. Um, let's get, let's get into a little employment side or volunteers, internships, um, employees one. I, I woofed on a farm here in Montana in my early twenties for six weeks. And one thing that, um, she, the, the rancher brought it to me. She's like, you know, how do I make, how do I make you valuable to this farm? Like, this isn't, I mean, I'm, I'm young and dumb. I don't know anything. I'm just here to like be some muscle, essentially like here, go feed cows, go pick up chicken, eggs, whatever. And like, she's like, how do you, so that you're more of an asset to me than, you know, a burden. Um, So how, how do you handle that on your property? Like with your employees?
0: Well, we tell people when they, um, you know, our hiring process is um, you know, you apply, you have to fill out a questionnaire. We do a, a, zoom interview most of the time. Um, and then you have to come do a three day workout with us. You actually got to come out here, stay on the farm. You got to work with us for three days, um, as a checkout, just to see if what you thought it was going to be matches your expectations. And also for us to screen who you are to make sure you're not some kind of lunatic. Um, and you know, we tell people when they come out for that, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, um. You know, a secret test or anything. And I say that the number one thing, um, the number, the two things I'm looking for is attitude and initiative. If you have those, anything else can be taught. Um, if you don't have those, it really doesn't matter what we teach you. Um, we can never really trust you. And so that's what we heavily, uh, heavily screen on. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of extreme ownership and we, you know, apply that as a team. And that's a, such a critical element, especially for a livestock farm, that we are dealing with living animals. And if every person on our team does not have an extreme level of ownership for what they're doing, that leads, uh, in the best case scenario, it leads to lost weight on a, a finished carcass, let's say. And in the worst case scenario, it leads to dead animals. And so there, there's no um you know kind of clocking out mentality of well that's not my problem you know everything is everybody's problem and if you see a problem you need to address it even if it's something that that is not normally something you you would do and so I, i can actually
1: relate to that really quick the the underfeeding animals so this was um in november when i did this when i started and I remember I I did my morning chores, um, and I came back in the house, was having having my tea, and she had gone outside to do something else, and I just hear a bunch of swearing, bunch of yelling, cussing, and I just it's like, I don't know, I don't know what happened. I I like I guess she'll just come inside and. Let me know what happened. I don't know what's going on. And so she comes in and just tears me a new one. Apparently, it was so cold that the cows needed more to eat. And so like when you, the way you could tell is if their backs are like arched, like they're trying to retain more heat for themselves or something. I don't remember, but that wasn't something I was ever taught. And so I, I felt like it was a little unjustified. Um, that like, how am I supposed to know that? Right. I've never, never been that close to cows, really. Like day to day. So I mean, yeah, good, I still remember it to this day. <laughs> that well, and, and there,
0: for. you know, of course, there's a dichotomy for everything. Um, uh, you know, we, we can't expect someone who just started working here to know the, um, uh, you know, intricacies of sow labor and when you need to intervene and you know what drugs you might need to give or when you just need to let her alone and let her do her thing um and so we have an incremental kind of teaching process with staff and we try to break it down into some mantras that are easy to remember like the first one that we teach staff when they come here is everything revolves around feed water fence and so that's easy to remember It doesn't matter whether you are on, um, you know, chickens or feeder pigs or piglets or sows, you know, each, each one of those animals is going to have a different application of feed water fence, but it's the same mental checklist that is the feed right for that particular animal and, you know, it's station in life is the fence working correctly and do they have water? And, you know, that, that is something that even someone who's on their first day should be able to grasp and can be held accountable to that. Right. It, you know, if you're not walking over and visually verifying the waterer, then you've violated the first principle of feed water fence. And so that, that's why to me, you know, um, that attitude and initiative is so important that someone who has a good attitude and has good initiative they are going to pay attention to that and even if they don't know the the exact um thing that they're supposed to do they're going to do their best and they're going to ask instead of just saying well you know f it they'll be fine that you know (laughs) that's that's what does not work well on a livestock farm
1: no no it doesn't that's things can get out of control really quickly like it starts slow but if you don't pick up on it it you can get into a tailspin for sure. Like little problem can be a big problem very quickly. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say has been the biggest challenge in farming you face so far?
0: Uh, I mean, there, there's always something that is the current biggest challenge. Um, you know, a lot of times the biggest challenge is yourself and, you know, getting yourself, disciplined to a routine or always improving, um, you know, yourself, Uh, something I was thinking about the other day is, you know, the, the challenge for growing a business is the bigger the business grows, the farther into the future you have to look that, you know, if you're just a small one man operation, you only need to look a month or so in the future, because if it falls apart, you can just go off and get another job um you know when you're only taking one pig every other month to a processor they can kind of just work you in wherever but as uh, a business grows and everything become has an element of scale to it you got to start looking further and further into the future and planning things further and further down the road and it's it's a growing process of always continually improving that you know there there are things that that employee who's here on his first day, he's got to learn. And there's, right. there's things that me, uh, full time farmer for 13 years, been in the industry for 25 years, there's things that I need to learn. And so any, you know, when you when you hit that point of stagnation, that's when you're going to start to decline when you kind of have that right you've arrived, time to hit cruise mode, um, mentality, always be so,
1: improving. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there there were challenges that we had in the early years that, you know, I would laugh about right now. Um, And then there are certainly um, challenges that we're dealing with right now that are very consequential. And, you know, (laughs) trying to juggle 15 different balls in the air and uh, keep things moving. So it's kind of a different thing at different times. And um, you just try to work through them you know, processing has been a huge challenge for, for several years and COVID has not helped that at all. Um, you know, you could always use another million dollars. That's always nice. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, that's always going to be, you You will always have the next project you want to do or the next thing that's on on the horizon for uh, capital to be sucked into. Um, so I, you know, I'd like to keep the challenge uh to, you know, I try to keep it as always get better with what's going on. And if there's not a challenge in front of you, then, you know, for, at least for me, if there's not a challenge in front of me, that's when stagnation will start to set in.
1: Sure. So yeah, yeah. let's talk about the, let's always talk about try the current it's always, challenge.
0: Yeah. It's always, it's always striving for the new PR. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that current challenge. Uh, I mean, the cost of everything is just insane right now. What are you, what are you doing to fight that, combat that, work with it? Um, anything, anything like that?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, certainly inflation is no fun. Um, you know, everything is getting, getting more expensive by the day. You know, feed prices are going up. Um, you know, the, the number one thing that we do is you just always got to stay in front of it that um, you know, Maybe we used to do audits and and reconcile numbers every six months kind of thing. Well, we need to do that like every two months right now, Um, you know, because we serve a lot of other farms as well, because that's one of our uh, big enterprises is selling piglets to other farms. And, you know, we take orders a year in advance, a year and a half in advance um, on, on piglets is keeping good communication open with those guys and just saying, Here's the situation, if we're having to roll on a 90 day pricing schedule, it's gonna adjust around. And you know that way they know what is coming down uh, the pike and they, they can make adjustments to what they're doing. Um, the, the biggest surprise for a business owner is an unexpected thing happening. But if you know that it's coming, you can say, all right, well, price for piglets is going up. Um, price for this is going up. And you can start making some adjustments right now that allows you to transfer that cost through to the market. Cause that's ultimately what you have to do when you are in a, a product uh, business, you have to pass the costs on to the customer. And um, you yeah, we've had to make a lot of those adjustments and so has everybody else. And right. farms who haven't made that adjustment are going to be out of business pretty soon um, because you'll, you'll find that the replacement cost of your inventory is now exceeding the revenue. Um, that you're bringing in on current product, and so there, there's a good school of thought that um, I learned from, uh, you know, the, the Bud Williams tree on um, sell buy versus buy sell. That when you are looking at marketing a product, kind of the intuitive way that we look at it is, you know, you buy the the base material, um, the the source ingredients for whatever you're doing, you manufacture the product or grow the animal, you sell it, and then your profit is what's left over. Mm -hmm. And his his approach was you have to completely invert that when you are in a a biological type of business, where you're buying animals continually to replace inventory, is that you have to sell the product by the replacement, and then you actualize profitability, because you have to you can't just sell the cow and you know start from zero again. You right. have to replace that cow in your herd before you can say, oh, this is our, our profit. And so that translates into a process of, we can't look at the inventory of say pork chops and beef steak and stuff that we have in the freezer. Uh, we can't look at that through the production cost of last year when it was produced or six months ago when it was produced. We have to look at it through the lens of what's it going to cost in six months to replace that inventory or what's it going to cost right now. And you have to make those price adjustments right now.
1: That's, that's very valuable right there. It's, so you're kind of like pre-selling your meat, like the meat that you sell. Is that?
0: Um, Well, it's not necessarily pre-selling, but you have to keep, you have to keep your prices true to the current condition. You, okay. can't, you can't say, all right, well, it cost me $100 to buy this piglet, and I put $200 of feed into it and you know, $200 of other costs. So if I sell it for $500, I'm breaking even. Well, the cost of piglets has gone up by 50% since then. The cost of feed has gone up by 200%. Um, you know, the, the replacement rate for the infrastructure that you're using has gone up by who knows how much. So you sold that pig for 500 bucks and all of a sudden the the next one is going to cost you 750 to produce. And, you know, either you are cash flowing that production cost out of your own pocket or you're saying this is the replacement rate for that inventory right now. So this is the price that has to be charged for it. Okay,
1: okay. I'm gonna have to look more into that just so I yeah. fully understand like that concept.
0: Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's the simple way to break it down is you're looking at how money flows through your business in a sell-buy perspective instead of a buy-sell. Sure,
1: sure. Because like the buy-sell is so like ingrained in everybody. I mean, like it's it's really hard to like... Think about it the other way. It's kind of like the Wall Street bets thing when you know it's you know you're supposed to buy stocks low and sell high. Well, when you're short selling, you buy high and sell low. It's like what that doesn't make any sense to me. But right, um, yeah, that's that's definitely a concept I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to look up more on my own. Sure. Um,
0: yeah, I, that's been very um, you know helpful for us as a business is understanding that. The numbers of yesterday are irrelevant for today, and you know even less relevant for tomorrow. That um, the only thing that matters, <laughs> and uh, you know this is one of the things that I laugh about in the you know Facebook groups, and you see these posts on a daily basis where someone two thousand miles away posts, "What's everybody charging for piglets?" <laughs> and, you know what they're tr- they're trying to gauge the market to see what price they should put on their product instead of knowing what their own numbers are and saying I need to charge x amount for my product they're they're just trying to kind of hide in the weeds of what everybody else is so they don't kind of stick out too far and have kind of an embarrassment of you know maybe asking too much but they don't want to lag too far behind and you mm-hmm. know get left behind on money that they you know left on the table and so you want to just kind of float up through the middle of everybody uh, instead of just knowing what your numbers are and saying, hey, you know, in Virginia, this is what we need to charge for piglets. And it's going to be different for someone who's doing it in Texas or someone who's doing it in Montana um, or someone who's doing it in Maine. And that's because food is a localized economy. We, uh, yeah. in it's true in sense. And it's going to, you know, oranges in uh, Alaska are going to be a lot more expensive than oranges in southern Florida. And there's, there's a reason for that.
1: Yeah. Yep. Alaskan oranges, maybe someday. There you go. Some, some GM, <laughs> GMO stuff.
0: Yeah. Raised in hoop houses or something.
1: Yeah. There you go. Um. So, so wrapping up here, you, you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of things uh, about get like what, like people getting started this mistakes that they made, they would make, but what would you tell someone that hasn't started at all? Just wants, just wants to get a couple, of uh, pig, like maybe like some Cooney Coonies or something like that. To raise. <laughs> no, no, please. Um, no, no. Cooney Coonies.
0: Why not? Oh no, please. No.
1: <laughs>
0: we could do another podcast on that one.
1: <laughs> well, all right. I'll, I'll have you back on for sure. Um, so, so other than, don't do Cooney coonies. What would you tell someone that wanted to get started?
0: Understand upfront, what is it that you are doing? You know, are, are you? Um, are you doing this to secure your own food supply? Um, are you doing this just to have a nice expensive hobby on nights and weekends? That's me. Um, or are you doing this as uh, a business? that is going to generate revenue and pay salaries and pay taxes and pay workers comp and all this other um, you know, stuff that businesses have to deal with. And I th- a lot of times the frustration um, that folks have with their farm is simply the symptom of their own indecisiveness of what they want it to be. And so, just own it. Whatever it is you you want the farm to be, identify. Well, maybe first identify what do you want the you know the homestead or the farmstead or the farm to be. Um, You know, as far as the role it plays in your life, is it a business? Is it not? And then start making decisions that correspond with that that uh, that mindset. Um, You know, most homesteads and farmsteads are never going to be profitable because that's not their intent the the intent sure. is to have a lifestyle and to secure a food chain um, which is perfectly valid nothing wrong with that um but th- that's a much different set of decision making tools than a farm who is doing it as you know let, let's say a legit enterprise where it has to pay salaries and pay taxes Um, different decisions have to be made for that type of business than for the homestead that has the Cooney Coonies. Um, You know, there, there's a reason you do not see a commercial template for Cooney Coonies is because it does not work.
1: (laughs) I think, I think the Cooney Cooney was just supposed to be like a more homesteader pig than a commercial pig, but that's (laughs) what I've heard. I,
0: Maybe I will uh, I will piss off your listeners, but uh, Cooney Coonies are a pyramid scheme uh, fa- fostered by those who already own Cooney Coonies who are trying to recover their money by getting other people to buy their Cooney Coonies. So I like that. <laughs> I like that take a lot. But, oh. I mean, not, nothing against them. They are they are a legit little pig that um, you know I'm sure is very tasty. Um, I've been around a few of them, but. It, it's just not conducive to a, a commercial production model, you know, whether it's a pastured one or especially a confinement one um, that, you know, it's just slow growing. This fly is going to die here. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a slow growing animal that um, doesn't gain well, doesn't have a lot of piglets and just isn't applicable to a commercial template, which uh, doesn't mean that it's not a, uh, you know an animal that deserves a love somewhere and doesn't fill many a plate somewhere, but it's it's just two very different um production templates sure yeah that that makes a lot of sense it um
1: I'm gonna get all the the cooney cooney hate now <laughs> that's all right. I'll send them your way. It's like look, don't t- don't talk to me talk to the talk to the cooney cooney <laughs> hater. It's- Um, but that that's fine. So so how about you tell people where they can find you? You got your YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and a website.
0: All that is farm builder. Yeah, it's all farm builder. Um, if you put that in on Facebook, it'll pull it up. On YouTube, it'll pull it up. Uh the website for some reason is a little bit hard to find. Um, it's farmbuilder.us. So you have to type that in pretty much exactly in order for that to pull up but that's uh that's where you can find me i'll have
1: a link for all that cool awesome great i appreciate your time and uh for everyone else farmhoplife.com subscribe blah blah all that good stuff we'll talk to you later all right thank you great interview jordan's super nice very sharp guy um it was hard to book him with him being so busy running his own operation obviously it's a lot of work he has employees but I'm glad that we were able to connect and make this make this interview happen um lots of good information here so appreciate everyone watching please like subscribe and most importantly share this video check out our website farmhoplife.com There you can sign up for our email list to be notified of new videos, interviews, and podcasts when they become available. You can email me anytime, matt at farmhoplife.com, and I'm always looking for new people to interview. If you'd like to come on the show and talk about homesteading, farming, food security, homeschooling, just go to farmhoplife.com slash guest. Thank you.